Live from Toaster, this is John Gibbs with The Morning Break. You are listening live. Welcome to this episode of The Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week is Professor Colin Diamond, CBE. Currently, Professor of Education at Birmingham University. In the past, Colin has been a senior civil servant and director of education in a wide-ranging discussion. We talk about some of the problems, developments and challenges of teaching in our diverse urban landscape. And we refer to the Birmingham book, Lessons in Urban Education, Leadership and Policy from the Trojan Horse Affair. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. And here we are. We're back with my guest, Colin Diamond. Thank you again so much for joining me with this. I've been looking forward to this discussion, partly because, as I said before we started recording, it fits so neatly in the guests I've had recently. So welcome. Thank you very much, John. Um, good to join you. Looking forward to our discussions, all the questions you're going to fire at me. Uh, you probably have to shut me up, because once we start talking about the book, Birmingham, urban education, uh, I can talk for the Commonwealth Plus, I guess. So, yeah, great to be here. Thank you. I found it, first of all, almost difficult to know how to structure this interview because I thought to myself, well, I know how I'll do this when I did think about it. When I used to teach English creative writing, one of the things in my career, I've taught for a number of years, I do, I'm retired now, but I, I taught, they used to use the technique where you'd zoom in and then kind of zoom out, get the students to zoom in on something. You start to fly on a desk and then the desk and then the room and then the house and then the, and zoom in. It seems to me that might be a good way to start. So if we start kind of at the beginning, the, the Trojan horse affair, we're talking 2014. And uh, it's, I doubt, I doubt there'd be many people who won't have heard that, that phrase. Why was it, why was it an affair? Because there seems to me that it's, it's become for different people a very powerful phrase. For some people, it's an example of a plot of one kind, and for other people, it's a plot of another kind. It's two parallel stories. Um, I think we use the term Trojan horse affair because it is relatively neutral and non-emotive. Some people, some audiences have called it a crisis, and actually, in English education policy terms, there was a crisis back in 2014 because both, uh, to Michael Gove's perspective, he was Secretary of State, um, his academies and free schools program appeared very vulnerable as a result of Trojan Horse. Plus, he has his own unique paranoia about Islam and Islamification. So for some, it was a crisis. For others, uh, you use the word plot. That takes us into conspiracy theory territory and so forth. I don't use the term plot because both of the major investigations into Trojan Horse, the one commissioned by Gove and the one commissioned by Birmingham City Council, found no evidence of a plot per se. So I've landed on that middle ground affair Events did happen, indisputably so, and I wanted to start from a, a non-emotive, 
factual base in part one of the book for those not familiar with Trojan Horse to say, well, look, these were the preconditions. This was what was happening in the city. And there was a sort of chain of events that followed. It seems to me that the Trojan Horse events and affair went off like a small, well, not small, quite a large bomb in a way uh, in in the Birmingham education system. And one of the themes that comes out in the book is the consequences it had for people's careers, for the education system in Birmingham. And I think your role was very much, I mean, you say there were two investigations. There was the, the Kershaw and the Clark report. And then there was in, then there was a House of Commons investigation. There's been a, there's been a podcast about this, both from the Washington Post and so on. But you, what you did was you, in a sense, you were coming in to put things back together. You were, you were deputy commissioner and you were, in a sense, coming in after the wreckage, after things had um, exploded. I, <laughs> there certainly was damage to uh, a number of institutions and individuals in Birmingham. And I saw some of that directly in the early months I was in the city. Then the recovery journey, and as you said quite accurately, I was deputy commissioner working to Sir Mike Tomlinson, former chief inspector. Uh, we needed to get underneath the causes of Trojan horse. How on earth had all this been allowed to happen and put things right? It, at that time, we referred to getting the basics back in place because in terms of Birmingham City Council's custodianship of education, a number of things were not right around school improvement, safeguarding, governance and communications in particular. Uh, nobody's fault. Blame is a useless commodity. But the net effect was that schools were left very exposed, school leaders and school governors. So things were put back together and duly presented to the Secretary of State, who was Nicky Morgan by that time, because Gove had been moved on by the Prime Minister, fairly unceremoniously so, and I think quite rightly so, that's my view. Um, and then, latterly, I've been much more interested in digging further into, well, what really happened here? And above all, John, what lessons can we learn that current school leaders, school governors, and urban education policy makers can learn from what happened in Birmingham. Let's, let's start with that. What, if we're zooming in, what, in your view, did happen? And that's, that sounds to be a very straightforward question, but it's not at all, because if I ask someone like Michael Gove, or I noticed last year there was a report by the Policy Exchange, uh, right, right-wing think tank, with a with a um, forward by Michael Gove, who says, you know, that we we must counter the view that this has been airbrushed away, and a um, a genuine, uh, unacceptable kind of Islamic plot had been uncovered, and this had been airbrushed aside, and yet the the podcast paints a very different picture. It paints a picture of an Isl Islamophobic hysteria. What, how would you characterise what happened? Well, I was part of a a private discussion recently with uh, Saida Wazi, who was chair of the Conservative Party, very influential character. And she, she has written a little 
about Trojan Horse in her own book called The Enemy Within. It's so readable. I recommend it to anybody. And also with John Holmwood, who wrote up until our book appeared, the only substantive text about Trojan Horse. And we're talking about this. And I presented my take on things. John Holmwood presented his take. And Saida was chairing, and she said, well, look, I can see truths and realities in what both of you are saying. And there is no single line, one-dimensional, simplistic version of what happened in Birmingham in the name of Trojan Horse. So let me just try and unpack some of it. This is almost Twitter style, because we could talk for hours about this. First of all, there was no plot. Let's make make that clear. There was nothing to do with violent extremism. What happened in a nutshell was that um, boys and girls from the British Pakistani community in Birmingham, specifically from Mirpur province, because that's where most of them come from, uh, were underachieving badly in the education system. Aspirations for them from the schools themselves, in many cases, were low. And as many of the parents have told me, one of the motivations for coming to England was to improve educational opportunities and outcomes for their children. So they were being failed by the system. Way back, and I'm talking at the very early part of this century, some people from the local community enrolled as governors in the schools. Great. That's what we want to see. Became actively involved in governance. And some of them, and in particular, uh, Tahir Alam, who, whose name figures throughout all of this, decided that for Muslim children to prosper in schools, first of all, we, you would want schools to be, as it were, uh, Islam sensitive to understand more about cultures and traditions of Islam. Yes, nothing to disagree with there. However, as things developed, um, it became kind of prescriptive in terms of how schools should and shouldn't behave. Um, the elements of what some people call plot refer to the fact that there was a pattern of entryism into school governing bodies uh, by people who, a very small group of people actually, but like-minded people, mates if you like, who began to destabilize leadership and governance in schools which were Muslim-majority pupils and mainly underperforming. And they set about, and there's no doubt about this, it's set out so clearly in Ian Kershaw's report, that they went about those activities, identified those schools, and in some cases caused havoc, resulting in head teachers' breakdowns, being moved on, uh, losing their careers. And that's irrespective of uh, uh, race or, or gender or faith. They just, you know, if they sensed there was a target, they went, they went for it. That went on relatively unchecked in Birmingham for a number of years. Everybody knew about it in the education system. It was an open secret. 
And once things had been exposed, it was interesting because the, the leader of the council, Sir Albert Bohr, in July 2014, apologized to the people of Birmingham. He said, we should have tackled this, but we didn't because we feared that we would be branded racist if we challenged the activities of these governors. And therein lies a whole conversation in itself about white liberal values and how you find your way through this maze. So this had been going on for a number of years. And then in November 2013, a letter was sent to a number of schools, inner city schools in Birmingham, setting out what we now recognize as the Trojan horse narrative. We'll appoint like-minded friends from the Salafi community, get them installed in schools, challenge the head teachers. We've succeeded in some schools already that others were, were targeting. And they also talked about moving to other cities, broadening out this, this agenda. Uh, that went from a backstreet discussion in East Birmingham to being on the front page of national newspapers by February 2014. And suddenly it was all over the heavyweights and the tabloids. And Michael Gove decided, in the light of what he had seen, to send in uh, Sir Michael Wilshaw as Chief Inspector Ofsted to inspect 21 schools. Uh, of the 21, five went into special measures, including the school where Tahir Alam himself was chair uh, of, of members. And that 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 was a national story because only two years before. So Michael Wilshaw himself, the chief inspector, had said it was a brilliant school. This is what all inner city schools should aim to uh, emulate. This is Parkview School. This is, yes, the former Parkview School, now Rockwood Academy. Yes. There were a couple of things there. There's the, there's the reaction. There's the context of the times so that, I was thinking as you were talking there about, about the way in which in the United States, it wasn't uncommon over the last few decades for school boards to be taken over by fairly fundamental uh, Christians who then said, well, we're going to ba ban Harry Potter or we're not going to, t we want, we want creationism to be taught side by side with evolutionary theory. And that would, that was presented in, in the States as, as a controversial issue. But what happened in Birmingham exploded. It became it became a sort of um, a, you say that a plot to undermine British values, but not just British values. It was it was it was a plot of some kind. It was dangerous, and this had to be swooped down upon. Yes, I touched on this uh, a few moments ago. There were two principal elements to this. One is that in relation to the academies and free schools program, a few months before, in the autumn of twenty thirteen, a free school a Muslim character free school in the city of Derby had gone badly, badly off track as a result of the action of its governors. I happened to be involved in events there. I was at the Ofsted feedback session. The, the lead inspector said it was the worst school he'd ever seen. It went from a very promising start downhill within a one term, which takes some doing. Um, and as you know, John, I mean, uh, organizations can crash very quickly, but it takes a long time to enable them to recover. So Michael Gove was mindful of that because that really shocked him that such a thing could happen to a free school. 
And it also ignited his own, reignited perhaps his own bizarre attitude toward Islam, which is set out in his book, Celsius 777, uh, 77. Uh, and that, 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 um, how could you summarize that? Um, he, he, I think he is a bit of a conspiracy theorist when it comes to Islam. And he believes that the West has been far too tolerant of these things and it's crept up on us. That's, that's the key message there. So two, two things on his radar happened at once. Hence 21 inspections overnight. Um, and so, so, okay. As somebody have said to me, well, this was a matter of weak governance thing could have been resolved locally. Move on. What more is there to see? This is where I believe that the Department for Education reacted disproportionately in s subsequent events. Uh, Michael Gove made a meal of it. Uh, it led to changes in primary legislation around school governance and so forth. It led to the introduction of the prevent duty for all public institutions, including, of course, all schools, and created, uh, my God, if there was trouble to start with, it, it created a long-term legacy of suspicion and fear of the government in not just Birmingham, but in other similar cities with similar demographics, with Leeds, Bradford's, uh, we look at Luton, for example, our statistical neighbor. Um, my goodness, what's happened here? Is it safe to be a, a Muslim school leader or a Muslim school governor? This is most unfortunate. So things spiraled out of control with the absolute blessing of uh, the Secretary of State at the time. It's interesting to make that link with the, with the PREVENT programme. I remember from my own experience when I was working at the time when PREVENT came in, and I thought, well, the problem with PREVENT is that it, it establishes the idea of a universal problem, probably where there isn't a universal problem. It's in every school, and you're going to now be looking for something that's found everywhere. It's under every behind every cupboard. And the other thing, it's going to be administered very unevenly. How can you ensure that what is sensitively done in one school becomes a witch, well, a witch hunt or a or alienates students in another school? And that and the prevent program, in a sense, came out of the Trojan horse affair. Yes, um, it put school leaders and governors in an invidious position. One of the consequences was that the great majority of referrals, particularly in those early years, you know. 2015, 16, 17 were false positives because um, school leaders were, were, were so fearful of under-reporting. So they, they, they I mean, there's, there's some sort of folklore stuff about a little kid in a primary school writing, saying, oh, I, I live in a terrorist house. Well, it, he meant in a terrorist house. Things like that, absurd things like that were reported without having been checked through thoroughly. Uh, that's kind of amusing. But serious at the same time, uh, when I was visiting schools, I remember particularly some schools led by some excellent, excellent colleagues who were, happened to be Muslim. They, they went overboard with what I call Union Jack patriotism because they felt that their loyalty is almost like the Tebbit test, you know, was, was on the line here in terms of loyalty to, to the country through what was then called fundamental British values. We now call them and I would say so-called British values, those universal values that the UN Charter espouses and so on. So there, it was a very difficult 
period for for people at the time. Um, and it cast a long shadow over education in, in the city. There was a lot of rebuilding of trust required and a lot of sensitive work around how those leading the system navigate their way through this complex intersectional maze of class politics, uh, race politics, gender, f- and faith. It's, and, and, and how does that interface with the state education system? There are, again, there are no quick fixes here. No, nobody's got it in one, but there are examples in the book. There are half a dozen examples in the book of school leaders who have navigated this road successfully. It strikes me that, that one of the themes and one of the bigger themes that comes out of the book is this unresolvable, in a sense, attention that's going to be always in education systems, whether they are between local and national, between the desire to create a quality of experience and ensure that every experience in every school is at least governed by some kind of standard idea, and at the same time responding to the people who are actually sending their kids to that school and their hopes, their desires and their wants and needs and so on. And finding some some balance between those two is... Uh, it's going to be well difficult and probably ongoing, and just it's always there. Absolutely, John. Um, it, it's going on as we speak in 450 state schools in Birmingham this afternoon, and probably the other 50 odd independent schools in the city. Uh, navigating your way through in terms of how do you construct policy and practice that works for your school community in relation, direct relation to the context that you work with whilst being cognizant of and complying with national policy edicts, uh, imperatives, encyclicals, and so on. Um, I think I personally find inspiration through some of the contributors to the book. Uh, so, for example, uh, Sajid Gulzar, who runs the Prince Albert Community Trust, Matt, in the city, a uh, local lad, went to school, went to actually one of the schools that was caught up in Trojan Horse. Um, uh, so, uh, classic uh, British, Asian, Brummy, you know, villa supporter, all of that. So, he, he lives and breathes education in in the city. Um, and his mat, his schools, uh, have put together policies which I feel are very, very inclusive, uh, enable all children to succeed. Initially, the schools they worked with were a while called downtown, Muslim majority, 90% plus percent Muslim majority have now diversified into the north end of the city, which is mainly white kids up in the north end, Sutton Coalfield, for those who know, know Birmingham. Uh, it's the same kind of formula, but adapted to the context that you are working with. I do have to declare an interest there because I am a trustee of that particular trust. But I think, you know, lo- local knowledge, local context, digging deep into the local community and being an authentic listener is one of the ways forward. Other people I can quote here, Herminda Channa, she took over a school that was really in a bad way after Trojan. Uh, and she established credibility by listening 
on Friday afternoons, mainly to the mums in the community, about what they really wanted. Their, as you said, their hopes, their fears, their aspirations. She literally opened the school doors, put the kettle on and said, I'm here for you. Tell me. She's a servant leader. She's a classic servant leader. Tell me what we can do for you. Uh, and there are other examples there. Again, uh, Azita Zahadi, she, her school was touched on marginally by Trojan. There were challenges to her leadership by, by some local governors and politicians. They never took root because Azita from day one put a premium on listening very carefully to what local people wanted and going to great lengths to explain, well, you may want that, but actually the English education system says we must do that. So, you know, and, and, and we're not kind of meet in the middle. That's a sort of low level phrase, but we will find a modus operandi, which reflects everything we need to do in the English school system, which is attuned as far as possible to what you want for your children growing up in our care, our custodianship. And there's a, there's a chapter in the book that describes that in relation to another, not, not, not Trojan Horse Affair, but another thing that people might remember in the news, which was the demonstrations taking place outside uh, Anderton Park School and Park Field School, where the school had introduced a very actually sounds sounds very good program really called something like no outsiders where they were going to establish the idea that no one in this society was excluded and we were a tolerant and open society that was interpreted by parents from a conservative and mostly muslim muslim background as being uh, promoting values they simply couldn't tolerate and so there were demonstrations outside the school and i think it was the joy warmington and a, a local pressure group came in in some way and they they, they said let's just Let's find a way of na navigating a middle way between this. And they actually resolve the problem eventually. Yes, that, that's right. So when the government, and I feel rightly, uh, introduced regulation, which said all schools in the country and primary schools must make children aware in an age-appropriate way that there are different families, some with two mums, some with two dads, some with one mum and a gran or whatever, any any combination of loving adults at, at home. Um, it wasn't solely the conservative end, if you like, of uh, Muslim communities who found this a challenge. It happened uh, within the Christian church and within some uh, elements of Judaism as well, because it really challenged teach God, whether it's the Torah, the Bible, or the Quran, according to your own interpretation. Um, in Birmingham, because we are, uh, you know, the, the larger single minority here are Muslim pupils. Uh, yes, it kicked off in two primary schools. Just to be very clear, it was Parkfield that had the No Outsiders curriculum, and it was written by the assistant head there, Andy Moffitt. And they'd introduced it very carefully years before. It was going really well. It wasn't solely about LGBT plus issues. It was about the Equality Act and all of the uh, protected characteristics. However, they did drop a stitch. They admit that when the new expectations around LGBT awareness came in, they didn't consult sufficiently with the community. And that led to... uh that dialogue, which Joy Warmington 
from BRAP, uh, which is a local organization. She mediated between, as it were, the two sides very effectively. And how, how can you summarize the outcome there? What, there's a sense of which, in which we all have to understand that we will never all agree on everything. There will be areas that remain contentious, no matter where you're coming from, whether you're intensely religious or humanist or whatever, in terms of how the what should be in the curriculum and how it's delivered. And there's almost invariably tensions between what children will hear at home or perhaps in a place of worship and what they hear in school. Of course, that's very, very different for a four-year-old compared with a 14-year-old. So age-appropriate is absolutely critical here. Um, what was unforgivable in this episode was the fact that um, there was agitation by certain members of the local community, which resulted in ugly, horrible protests outside the schools, those two primary schools. Very distressing for everyone involved, not the least of it, the children. I mean, the, you know, the children were the pawns in this, I felt. And I, I wrote, I wrote in the Education Guardian about this. I wrote in Schools Week about, I, I thought it was appalling that the curriculum could be mediated, as it were, by my mob rule. And I don't care where you're coming from, whatever your disposition is. Um, those kind of protests outside primary schools were, uh, are not on. Uh, Parkfield was uh, all calmed down with the aid of Joy and her organisation. In the end, the city council had to get an injunction out to stop protests within a certain radius of Anderton Park School, a maintain school. But just on the record, because I know Anderton Park would say, we didn't do out no outsiders. They didn't. However, uh, a very... Um, very impressive school, very vibrant school, very inclusive school, and very clear in terms of being supportive of the members of their own community. Because in every school, there will be uh, adults and children with LGBT belongings, as it were, you know. Uh, so that fortunately, we have moved on and things have been very quiet there. The question you have to ask yourself, John, is how come this kicked off just in Birmingham and in no other city in our country. Well, the, uh, and the answer, I'm being rhetorical here, just very briefly, the answer is that um, there had been success in previous years of disrupting school governance and leadership. Uh, that's evidenced. And some people thought, well, if that's happened before, we can make it happen again, only in Birmingham. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. You're listening to The Morning Break with John Gibbs and my guest this week, Professor Colin Diamond, and we're discussing his book, The Birmingham Book, Lessons in Urban Education, Leadership and Policy from the Trojan Horse Affair. People saw in the Trojan Horse Affair and so on what they wanted to see. It became a kind of litmus test to how you believed the kind of society you were living in, the way it was going. It became a, a place where you saw the fears you expected to find. Since then, it's it's still it's still doing that. I mean, it's still it's still become something where 
if you hear someone say, well, it was a, you know, what that was terrible, a disgraceful, what went on that plot in Birmingham, you would understand where politically they were, they were sort of coming from. And, and maybe the reverse as well. That if he, if it was purely, uh, a, an, Isla uh, an Islamic phobic reaction, then you'd understand where they were coming from as well in the, in the kind of ideological view of what, what kind of Britain we're in. There are some facts which are indisputable here. However, the way in which you select to interpret events, like with any historic event, um, depends on the lenses through which you are looking. They could be uh, through theological lenses. They could be through a Marxist class analysis. They could be through pure pedagogical kind of discussion. Uh, you can come at it from a feminist angle because one of the threads here throughout the horse, as Ian Kershaw said to me, I wish I'd had more time to look at this, was misogyny, putting down of, of girls and women. Uh, so there are many different lenses, all of which are relevant. And that's why we have a book of 450 pages, not 45 pages. And that's why I invited colleagues from the university, as well as some of the school leaders that we've touched on, and pretty distinguished educationalists who've grown up in this city, who've experienced all of this over the years. Everyone's perspective is valid. That's where you start from. Perception is all here. And then I think our duty is to listen to each other, keep talking about it, and keep refining that which we offer to the children in the classroom, which is the most important thing of all. And um, there's always going to be fresh challenges coming along. Uh, this isn't whataboutery, but I mean, the whole thing around misogyny and Andrew Tate of late, very recently, I've seen some brilliant lesson examples of how schools are tackling that. Uh, not necessarily from Birmingham, but I'm sure I know it's happening in the Birmingham classrooms today. So there's always going to be fresh challenges coming back to that intersectional sort of 3D matrix that urban school leaders and teachers uh, work their way through, pretty sure-footedly in most cases, uh, sometimes a little delicately. I looked briefly at the um, policy exchange report, and they highlighted things that they took as face value that their readers should be appalled by. And there were things that were fairly appalling. There were things like, as you say, out-and-out out misogyny, uh, attitudes about women that you would find you really wouldn't want girls to be taught about their, their role within marriage and so on. And yet at the same time, they said, they said the, the wearing of headscarves encouraged or there was pressure to wear headscarves. And I thought, well, in a sense, I, if I put aside my sort of my liberal bias, I don't really like that idea. But on the other hand, it's not a million miles from wearing a school uniform or the or the call to prayer on a school pro playground. Well, I, I probably wouldn't I'd rather not do it. I'd rather not have religion anywhere near schools at all. But how bad is that in, from singing all creatures great and small in the assembly? So some of it, some of it was a sense in which things that weren't that bad were blown out of proportion and things that were there. And yet there were, as you say, things that really were concerned at the same time. Yes. And, and, and you are doing a fact check on fact check there on things that definitely happened, a series of events that happened. Uh, in some cases, 
and I'm a privileged person because I was working for the government at some of the time and then Birmingham City Council later. I've seen the extensive uh, volumes of documentation of evidence that sit under what was happening about some of these things. And there are unedifying things that happened that shouldn't have happened. So up front, we see things around encouragement to worship and so forth and the call to prayer and so on of themselves, uh, not the most serious things to happen on the planet. There are other things that are more important. Uh, however, they were the, they, they were the tip of the iceberg, shall we say, in terms of unacceptable governance and leadership activities. Um, now the headscarf, uh, is an interesting one. Uh, and it's not something I personally lose sleep about. Uh, it's something where, uh, I mentioned Sajid earlier, Sajid Gulzar. I mean, he was outraged. He was on national TV news because, uh, somebody had alleged that, uh, young girls in primary school wearing headscarves was some kind of indication of premature sexualization. I mean, it's a, an outrageous thing to say. We have very short memories in this country about, you know, anyone who went uh, on holiday to Spain, Portugal, Greece, uh, back in the 70s, shall we say, most of the women covered their heads. It was just the way they were. It was a culture. That's what, and now it's not like that, but nobody worried about it. Um, now, the fascinating thing to me, a uh, personal sort of view, is, is that when I talk with young women uh, in secondary schools who are wearing headscarves now, for them, it is a choice that their mums didn't necessarily make. It is a, a, a badge of identity with Islam. It's part of their finding themselves in where do we fit in this complex English society that we are growing up in. So... uh far from being something that is oppressing them or forced on them. They're doing stuff that their parents weren't actually doing. Uh, their grandmothers may have covered their heads. The mum said, no, we're not doing that. We're more assimilation, if you like. We say, no, we are proud to be young Muslim women, and we are our own version of ourselves. And then you get into the classic school uniform stuff about, well, how high can it be? How many pieces of jewellery can you have in it? Uh, what colours and so on. And of course, you know, uh, teachers are going around and say, oh, that's a bit big. That's a bit ostentatious. That's a bit, you know, uh, it's, it's just like the length of skirt or wearing the tie. You know, um, the teenagers will push the boundaries because that's what teenagers, teenagers always do because it's all about individuation and challenge and that will continue forever, thank goodness. Oh, absolutely. I can recall uh, when a school uniform was introduced at a school I was teaching at and I said to the teacher, I said, well, we said the head teacher was introducing this. I said, well, you do realise that soon enough we'll be checking the length of skirts and walking around saying it's above or below the knee. And he said, oh, no, it won't be like that. We'll just, we'll do it very softly. But we were. Soon enough, we were at the school gate saying that's too short. And girls were rolling them down and all that stuff. And it, and it, and it wasn't the, the introduction of school uniforms, which curiously came back with a vengeance in my career, having disappeared, was... Uh, a reaction to many of the uh, fears about young people and a fear of the changing society that was slipping between our fingers and wanting to establish a kind of a kind of order and discipline i, I felt and the other thing i'll just before we get into that i want to talk about the change in society but parkview school you you said when when students were wearing the headscarf they felt a certain self-confidence so young people might have chosen to do something their mothers had actually stopped doing 
Well, when it was a successful school, when Michael Wilshaw came in, came in the first time and he looked at it and he said, this is a great school. There's order, there's discipline. It's a bit like Mossbourne School. It's a, it, the kids are confident and so on. And he comes back a little while later, very short time later, and says it's a failing school. But the success had been achieved to some extent by responding to the, con the context and the expectations of parents and students. They, fe they felt more self-confident. They felt more that this was the kind of environment they could learn in. And therefore, they were learning in. So that was, in a sense, adapting to. In the introduction, Mike Mick Waters says that he went to Parkview, and it wasn't to his cup of tea, but he recognised it was successful. Yes, undeniably so in terms of the results it got and the trust it had from the local community. To hear Alarm himself went there as a boy. Uh, so he was authentic. He is authentic in terms of, of, of the community, of course. Uh, however, uh, as Mick Waters touched on, he wasn't entirely comfortable with what was happening. Um, but he didn't want to be churlish to the head, then head teacher and ask too many questions because she was celebrating the Ofsted outcome. When Adrian Packer took over as head teacher in the autumn of 2014, he discovered there were a lot of things that, again, he was not comfortable with, many of which had been captured in the Ofsted inspections and then the Education Funding Agency follow-up investigations. There were some serious safeguarding issues uh, around girls in, in particular. Um, there had been some uh, issues in relation to staff. I can't go into the details here, which uh, had to be sorted out with great difficulty, and it took a long time to get things right. Now, Adrian's perception, Adrian Packer's perception, uh, and it's there in his chapter, was that the school was something of a close community unto itself. And he wanted to make sure that the community was looking out much further than the confines of its own community in Alum Rock. That's where it sits in East Birmingham and has linked it subsequently uh, with the Lawn Tennis uh, Association, for example. So pupils now from what is Rockwood Academy will now go to Wimbledon every year and participate in national sporting events. He, f uh, he felt much more of that was needed. It would be wrong to say, well, look, uh, the results in terms of, you know, the, 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 the standard subjects, English and maths and so forth, weren't impressive. They, and then, of course, they dropped a bit and they're now improving again. And if you look at the progress made by the students, it's very, very good indeed. But there was, again, there was stuff we can't really go into here, but there was stuff to be sorted out. Another theme that comes in the book is that in 2002, but say we go back in time to Birmingham in 2000, up to about 2002, Birmingham was led by Tim Brighouse, who's, uh, and it was a feeling that it was a beacon of a city in terms of education. And yet by 2014, there were serious problems. And in between, things had happened. And things that weren't to do with Islam and weren't to do with the, the, the events of, of, the, of the Trojan horse, but, but things to do with the changing view of the way schools were managed. 
and a different kind of experience, the arrival of trusts, the arrival of a kind of managerialism, uh, a data-driven approach to teaching, outcomes more important than maybe other aspects of school life. And that maybe was another context of what was happening to schools in Birmingham at, at the time. Yes, indeed. Uh, so going back to that Ofsted report of Birmingham City Council's local education authority, that's what it was back in back in the day, um, the lead inspector said, look, th th this is exemplary. This local education authority led by Tim Brighouse with the able assistance of colleagues like Mick Waters that we talked about, he was assistant director, have transcended things. They have demonstrated how working together uh, huge educational attainment uh, improvements can be can be made. The city had a sense of confidence. The leaders who came aboard at that time were infused with a sense of purpose, confidence, and energy, which lasted long after Tim Brighouse moved on because he he went on to lead the London Challenge based on the recipe, the ingredients of how uh, he and his colleagues uh, got school improvement going here in the city. Then a number of things happened. Uh, the Children Act came along, which welded together health, education, children's social care. Now, education was top of the range in the city. Children's social care was struggling throughout these years. It was only really put back together properly uh, post-2014. So welding together, it's a bit like, you know, a thoroughbred with a, a donkey, forgive me for that rather crude analogy, if you like, but it was always going to be very difficult to make the Children Act happen in a huge city like this, the largest single municipal authority in Europe. So that was going to be a challenge. Then austerity came along at the same time as the Academies Act. So the councillors here we're told, look, you're losing power over your schools. Oh, and by the way, we're taking away your money at the same time. So the advisory service that supported schools went down from a headcount of around 200 in around 2012 to half a dozen by 2014. It was asset stripped. The council had no option but to do that. And it also needed to prioritise children's social care because it was in Ofsted language, failing, not my language, but that, you know, it was in special measures. So city had to, uh, target appropriately. Um, and the Academies Act, yes. So they're saying, well, look, you know, schools can weigh anchor from local authority. Quite a few did in the city, uh, because there were bribery on the table, masses of amount of money on the table in the early days of the academy conversions. And, uh, so it was open season then for the government to increase the number of academies early on. And some of which we've been talking about here today. Um, as Adrian Packer said, with reference to a few of them, they didn't just take the ball. They stole the ball and ran away with it over the horizon. In other words, they took those so-called freedoms and autonomy to ridiculous lengths and completely removed themselves from any sense of checks, controls, balances with the local authority. And it's, you know, in a sense, that was the message from Gove at the time. Become free, do your own thing, take your own money, and you will inexorably improve. 
In early 2023, we know that is not a fact. We know there is no automatic connection between academization and school improvement. And there are lots of individual examples of academies that improved, academies that have crashed and burned, local authority schools that have really improved, local authority schools that have crashed and burned. There isn't an overall pattern here. It's not about structures. It's all about leadership on the ground within the community. My, my, my regret about this, and I do touch on it in the book, and this is a personal view, is that what had once been a unified, very impressive education system that was citywide has now been fragmented. It's very hard to hold it all together. And those people who had been the local authority leaders in the day, I think we find them now out leading local authority, I beg your pardon, multi-academy trusts. I mentioned Sajid Gulzar earlier, Herminda Chana. Uh, they, I'm convinced they would have been local education authority advisors, principal advisors, and so on. They are rightly t- turning their energies to leading and directing mats because that's the way forward right, right now. So we've seen a massive change there, a sea change of governance and leadership. The question we must ask ourselves is, does it benefit the pupils, students ultimately? And we've got lots of examples where that's definitely happening within the city. You could say in spite of national education policy rather than because of it, because people on the ground look at what the centre is saying, DFE and all that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, how do we make it work on the ground in our town, our city, our community? That's what the best people do. You skip past the dedication in a book, but the dedication is very, I think, telling in the book. You dedicate the book to the to those leaders who quietly work to transform the lives of children. And it reminded me of the sort of last lines of Middlemarch, the unsung heroes of of the world who quietly go off to their graves <laughs> unheralded, but have done good on the way. But what you seem to be saying there is the, the structure of schools, the sort of neoliberal world of if we put schools in competition with each other, if we measure them according to certain criteria, then inevitably they'll all improve. And it won't really matter about people so much. Now, now, so, so that, that's that change mitigated against the good people doing good work. Well, they, they find themselves in places where they can do it. They find themselves in a good trust and there are very good trusts and they, or they might find themselves um, not on their children. And it'd be the children, sort of a sort of lottery effect, you know, if you're a postcode or lottery effect where if you're in a good trust, that's great. But if you're not, that's not great. And it goes further than that, John. As you know, you can have on the same site a junior school that is part of one trust and an infant school that might be maintained or part of another trust. Patently absurd. Uh, it doesn't mean to say that the local heads won't work together. Of course they do. But my goodness, what a hindrance, what, what an unnecessary and inefficient impediment within the system. So yes, uh, I did very consciously dedicate the book to the school leaders in the city. We've name-checked half a dozen of them here. Uh, we must remember there's 450 in the state system. And in the east end of the city, where the most contentious of things happened, we mentioned two or three schools. There are hundreds of them there. And many with Muslim-majority cohorts of, of, of children and young people getting on very well, navigating those difficult issues remarkably successfully. I think we 
we need to remember that how those people carried on stoically with all of this going on around them. Uh, it wasn't the easiest job at the time, and that they'll be very glad that the focus went away. I would say, you know, it's an organisation, isn't it? When the cameras have gone, kind of thing, you're left with the day-to-day realities to to pick up. Um, yes, so that's those challenges remain. If you did this as a sort of bell curve, the solid middle in there, those two thirds in the middle are carrying on very well indeed. What impresses me about this city, or you can tell I'm affectionate towards it, I'm sitting right in the middle of it now, is that we have had a great Commonwealth Games. Um, the sun shone on everywhere that summer. It felt fantastic. And you walk around the Civic Piazza. It's a beautiful place to see. If you haven't been, come and have a look at it. It's magnificent. And then you wander off down the hill, either side of the piazza. Only a matter of a few hundred meters, you'll be in schools that take those members of society who've, by and large, newly arrived from all countries. And at the moment, Afghanistan, Ukraine, Eritrea, Somalia, Yemen, and so forth. They arrive in not the best of shape. And those children come to school, probably not having spoken much English before, not used to regular schooling because in some cases there was no education available because of the the war zones and chaos that they left. And within a matter of a year or two, I've seen it. I've seen it with Syrian refugee children. They're happily settled in school, purring along, really doing incredibly well. Now, that that's miraculous to me. Some people say, well, they're just doing the job they're paid for. No, it's, it's a lot more than that. Uh, if you did the job you paid for, you'd be off from school at whatever time. No, this is going that extra mile every day to make sure those kids begin from a, such a challenging uh, experience, horrific, traumatic experience in their lives, to thriving in a school. That's the society they meet first. You know, I, I see the parents just around here where I'm sitting, taking their little ones to school in the mornings, immaculately dressed. That takes an effort, getting their kids to school, and then the schools meet and greet and do fantastic things with them. In terms of schools on doors and impact, we can see the value added, the progress that primary schools make here. Uh, it, it's on a par with national. It's great. to the kids with EAL, free school meal and silent. And so, so most of the time, most of the schools are doing it absolutely right. Plus, plus, plus along that may, may that continue. We're coming to the end now. And that is a, that is such a brilliantly uplifting thought. Just one last question. If, have we, re- have we reached in a sense, a peak trust and is the is the mood of education going to change? Is that what what is the future? The next few years, I'm putting asking you to predict the future, which is impossible, really. But where where is where is education going in this country? A colleague at university asked me the other day, well, what did I think of current education policy? I said, well, to be honest, I don't think there is one. We are drifting at national level. There is still a reliance on structural reform to improve things and a pretty narrow set of uh, 
the the ministers understanding what concess, success consists of in the education system. It's incredibly narrow. Uh, well, we know now academization, 100% academization is off the table. It's a busted flush. The bill's been abandoned. So the civil servants are very quiet at the moment. Uh, and head teachers, look, uh, MAP CEOs are working their own way through things. It's being done at very local level. So what do I see in the future? Well, likely political change ahead. Uh, we know that the shadow ministers and secretary of state have been going around taking soundings from a lot of people about what, what do we need? Um, if I could wave a magic wand, this is what I'm hoping for, really. Let's get back to as near as we can to restore Sure Start. It won't be called that as such, but there's almost universal agreement that one thing New Labour did was get early years right. That's the foundation. That's where it really, really happens. Then as we move into what we fondly refer to as statutory schooling and all of that in, in our country, uh, let's stop the weighing and measuring the old adage about the, the pig getting fat and so forth. We, 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 we overweigh and measure like nobody else, like no comparators. We don't need that. Schools, by and large, have a very strong sense of how they are doing. Uh, and peer review is more effective than a very harsh one-off periodic offset inspection. So let's reduce the hyper accountability regime. That in turn, would give head teachers in particular a sense of security. Uh, they are all insecure. I don't think you'll find a secure head teacher in the country. So we need to reduce the pressure in the system. And I feel we need a national conversation about what we want from schooling. Every couple of days, somebody throws something new into what schools should do. Recently, it's all about economic literacy. We can see why. Of course, it's really important. But um, Mick Waters has a slide with about 50 things that Secretary of State have said education systems should do, from kids being aware of farms to looking after their own teeth. It just goes on and on and on. Um, you have to put boundaries around this. At the same time, you have local flexibility. Let's have that national conversation about what we really want from our schools. And then finally, moving into 14 to 19, uh, I don't think it's working. I think the system still puts a huge premium on those who are heading for A-levels and universities. That's about half the population and almost discounts those who are heading off for apprenticeships and colleges. It, it In effect... Yes, it's a comprehensive system overall, but it discriminates against those who are not heading for university. As somebody told me the other day, uh, she said, I was doing art at school. I was really doing well in it. I told the art teacher I didn't want to go to university and she dropped me like a stone. Not as dramatically as that, but that does happen. I saw it in my own kids' school. I see it in schools now. And as a governor, I keep saying, what are you doing for the non-academic kids? How are you imbuing excellence and a sense of worth in what they do? Because I can assure you they are not heading for uni. So how, how other than rhetorical statements, do you, or, you know, sort of uh, policy statements, how do you ensure that those kids feel valued, cherished, and are achieving to their max and, and, and are up there on the platform getting prizes, the same as the AAA students? I think we just 
dishonest in schools about that. We don't own that conversation. Colin, that brought us to an end. And thank you so much. I really just loved listening to that last piece there. I just thought that I couldn't disagree, couldn't disagree with any and wholeheartedly agreed. And I would say that I thoroughly, also thoroughly enjoyed reading what is a, a, a large tome, the Birmingham book, and the, the analysis of the consequences and the context of the Trojan horse affair. So Colin Dunn, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for allowing me to indulge myself here, John, and really enjoyed questions, the discussion. Long may it continue. Thank you. This week, my guest was Professor Colin Diamond. We were discussing his book, The Birmingham Book, Lessons in Urban Education, Leadership and Policy from the Trojan Horse Affair. My main takeaway this week in my quest to understand what schools are for, is that schools can never entirely be everything everyone wants them to be. Schools have to look forward and they have to look backwards. They have to teach the values and wisdom and traditions of society. But they have to challenge those same things, teaching critical thinking and new ideas. And they will inevitably be a tension. And that tension, I think, was what played out in the Trojan Horse Affair. Dedicated and good teachers work daily to resolve these tensions. Schools can never reject the values of the past or they'll lose the communities within which they work. But they have to challenge them as well to prepare students who are, after all, a new generation who will confront new problems and a new world. Thank you for listening. This program is now available as a podcast on Spotify and many other platforms. to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.